Hebrews chapter 2, Sin and Judgment. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Amen. There is sin and judgment in Hebrews chapter 2. It is a continuation from chapter 1 
and most explicitly we will find it in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. However, it is throughout this chapter. Remember that the apostle, in undertaking to write to the Hebrew Christians, the Jewish Christians, those who were of the ethnicity of the people of Israel, of the tribes of Israel, they would have been familiar with the Old Testament. They would have been familiar, those at least who were zealous and religious, would have had some familiarity with the Old Testament and the interpretations of the day related to the various passages of the Old Testament. The the Apostle addresses them by quoting the Old Testament numerous times throughout the book of Hebrews. We especially have already seen it in chapter 1, and we will see it here again in chapter 2. Why does he do it? He does it because he is proving and showing that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the New Testament. The Savior of the Old Testament is the same Savior of the New Testament. The Christ of the Old Testament is the same Christ of the New Testament. The way of salvation in the Old Testament is the same way of salvation in the New Testament. There is nothing new, nothing strange, nothing foreign, nothing that people could say, well, that's a new doctrine, that's a strange teaching. We never heard about Christ dying on the cross. We never heard that that was supposed to happen. So on. He is one by one taking apart their false beliefs. He will prove that the Old Testament teaches that. But in chapters 1 and 2, primarily, he is showing the people that Christ in His coming, His first coming, in His incarnation, He is a superior source of revelation than all who preceded Him. In this way, in that the Son of God personally walked on the earth and preached and demonstrated by example how to love God, how to know God, how to fear God, how to obey God. He did so. And in his presence, he died on the cross and rose from the dead. Things that the prophets preached would happen actually did happen. And they saw it with their own eyes. That's in chapter 1, especially verses 1 and 2. And then in chapter 1, verse 3, and through chapter 2, he seeks to prove that Christ is superior to all angels. He is superior to all angels. Therefore, he is above them. He is their creator. He is their God. And they must worship him. As we saw in chapter 1, verse 6. Let all the angels of God worship him. His proof about the angels is also throughout chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 2, he mentions angels. 2, verse 2. In 2, verse 7, he says, A little while, or 2, 5, he did not subject to angels the world to come. 2, 7, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. Verse 9, but we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels. And then we come to 2, 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to 
angels. He is superior to angels, but at a point in time, he is inferior to angels in order to secure our salvation. This is the point he makes in chapter 2. Christ is superior to angels and ought to be worshipped by all angels and all men. But for a period of time, for a little while, he was made lower than the angels. And while he was made lower than the angels, he had to suffer and die for our sins. He had to do so to release us from sin, death, the devil, the punishment of sin, everything related to sin. He came and he had to be inferior to angels for a while. So if he is inferior to angels, the critics, the skeptics shouldn't say, well, he's lesser than the angels. Therefore, why are we worshiping him? Why should we follow him as Lord and God? Why should we consider him our Redeemer if he's lower than angels? Only God is our Savior and Redeemer. They know that from the Old Testament. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Isaiah 43, 10 and 11. They know that, and it's true. But his point is, he is both divine and human. Human for a purpose on the earth to pay for our sins. These doctrines, and remember, theologically, this is what he undertakes to prove in 12 chapters. Practically, he makes some points in chapter 13, his final chapter. But in chapters 1 to 12, he is pressing and stressing the points of theology. Our correct theology, otherwise there is no salvation. No salvation. Is that not what he said in verse 3? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So, just because we might see some mass murderer and say, okay, he's not a Christian. He claims to be a Christian, but he's not a Christian. That's an easy, that's an easy case to decide. But what we are reluctant to do is to say, well, if people get theology wrong, it's not a sin, it's just a difference of opinion. It's just his background. He just interprets differently. His hermeneutic is different. He just read a certain book, and that the author of that book, he's a good Christian, so why would we blame him for that view? This is the tendency whenever theology comes up, to think that the invisible, the intangible, the theological is not as important as the moral. But the theological is the basis for the corrupt morality. Defective theology produces depraved morality. The two go together, hand in hand. That's the way it is. And the apostle shows this here. So chapter 2, we can see three main sections of chapter 2. We could break it up into more, but we'll do three main ones. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, a warning. This is one of the famous warning passages of the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, 1 to 4. Next, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, he cites a passage from Psalm 8 
in order to prove that Christ does have dominion, but temporarily he is made lower than the angels. That's chapter 2, 5 to 8. Then in chapter 2, 9 to 18, the fact that he had to die for our sins. He had to die. And this death was already proclaimed and anticipated in the Old Testament. Remember, we cited from chapter 1, it continues into chapter 2. Let's identify the Old Testament quotations first before we start the exposition. Remember in chapter 1, in case you missed it, chapter 1, verse 5, is Psalm 2-7. Chapter 1, verse 5, the second part of verse 5, 2 Samuel 7, 14. Chapter 1, verse 6, is Deuteronomy 32-43. In the Old Greek text and in the Qumranic text of Deuteronomy 32-43. Chapter 1, verse 7, is taken from Psalm 104 14. Psalm 104, 14. Also Psalm 18, 10. 18, 10. And 2 Samuel 22, 11. 2 Samuel 22, 11. Verse 8 is taken, verses 8 and 9 are taken from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Verses 10 to 12, chapter 1, 10 to 12, Psalm 102. 25 to 27. 102, 25 to 27. And 113 is from Psalm 110, verse 1. 110, verse 1. Now, chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Chapter 2, verses 6 to 8 are taken from Psalm 8, 4 to 6. Psalm 8, 4 to 6. Chapter 2, verse 12, is Psalm 22, 22. Psalm 22, 22. 2, 13, 2, 13, Isaiah 8, verse 17, Isaiah 8, 17, and Psalm 18, 2. Psalm 18, 2. And verse 13, one more quote from Isaiah 8, 18. Isaiah 8, 18. These are the direct quotes from the Old Testament. This shows that if we neglect the Old Testament, ditch the Old Testament, denigrate the Old Testament, if we set it aside and relegate it to neglect and ignorance, and even discard it, if we do any of that, it's a sin. We cannot do so. We must understand the Old Testament correctly. If we understand the Old Testament correctly, we will understand the New Testament. The New Testament is a commentary of the Old. Whatever we read in the Old is consistent and harmonious with the New. The two go together. Next, chapter 2, 1 to 4. This is the first warning passage of the book. 
2, 1 to 4. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For this reason, because of what he's teaching, he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must. There is no choice here. There is no preferential uh, feelings, no opinions, no my view, your view, your personality, my personality, my culture, your culture. None of that is relevant. We must pay much closer attention. Most times when people gather, most times when people read the word on their own, most times people are not paying attention. Their thoughts are distracted. They're thinking about the weather. They're thinking about their day. They're thinking about their night. They're thinking about the next day. They're thinking about their troubles. They're thinking about the speaker. They're thinking about the words. They're th- the words or the, the terminology, the diction. They're thinking about anything and everything else except what God is saying. He says we must pay much closer attention. Whatever attention you have already given, it's good, but it's not good enough. And he also says to what we have heard. It is very easy to be casual with what we hear. Throughout the day, most of the time, we are not listening or hearing things about eternal salvation. Most of the time. It has to do with family, with children, with friends, with our jobs. It has to do with politics. It has to do with culture, what's happening in the world. It has to do with cooking and cleaning. It has to do with different things like that in life. But this here, he says, to what we have heard. Why? Because it has to do with salvation. It has to do with salvation. People think salvation is easy. But Jesus said in Luke 13, 22 to 30, strive to enter by the narrow gate. He said, strive, strive. He didn't say it would be a leisurely walk. He didn't say it would be a cakewalk. He didn't say you will enter on a bed of ease with your feet up. He didn't say it like that. He said, strive. So here too. Why? Why must we be actively striving? Why is it active, not passive? Why is it forward, not neutral or backward? Because he says, lest or else we drift away from it. We drift away. If there is a boat at the bank, if there is a boat right there at the shore and the wind is blowing and the owner of the boat, the sailor, 
does not have an active, secure means of making sure that boat stays there and that the wind doesn't blow it away into the middle of the sea, he's going to lose his boat. But this is what happens. We have many waves, sometimes tidal waves of life, bombarding us, overwhelming us, flooding us, and it causes us to drift away. Sometimes gently, sometimes harshly, we drift away. This can easily happen with the things of God. It should not. We should have diligence, awareness, and exert much effort not to drift away. Now the warning part. He says we must do this and not drift away, but why? Why so? Verses 2 and 2 to 4. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard, God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. What is the comparison we have? What is the comparison? The comparison in verse 2 has to do with the delivery of the law of Moses. It has to do with not only the delivery of the law of Moses by means of angels, through angels, but it also has to do with the worst penalty or the penalties that Moses inflicted on those who disobeyed. Whether it is repayment of goods or the cost of one's own life, that would be the most severe of the penalties. He's saying what Moses delivered to the people was of a lesser consequence than what the Lord Jesus delivered to the people. That's the fundamental point he makes here in verses 2 to 4. He'll make the same point in chapter 10. Let's turn there. Chapter 10, 26 to 31. Remember, the comparison, what's the worst penalty Moses issued, or what were the penalties, and what was the worst penalty? And what is the penalty that Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior, issued for those who refuse to believe in the gospel, the true gospel? This comparison is made again. And this happens more than once in the book of Hebrews, more than twice. But this one will make it ultimately, uh, imminently clear to us. 10.26 For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. 
but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The apostle says in verse 29, How much severer punishment? Well, who is the one who declares? Who is the one who issues the severer punishment? The Lord does. The Lord Christ does. Just as he does in Hebrews chapter 2. 1 to 4. This this obliterates the typical notion that is common in Christianity. The God of the Old Testament is harsh and cruel. He's impatient, he's angry, and his penalties are extremely severe. And Moses, he was a tyrant. Moses was the delivery man for this tyranny and despotic penalty for those who disobeyed the law of Moses. This is how the Old Testament is typically characterized. Moses is characterized that way, and the God of the Old Testament is characterized that way. Correct? That's how people look at it? Erroneously, and to the detriment of their soul. But here, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 10, Hebrews 6, 3 to 8, Hebrews 12, 18 to 29, all of these passages say it in the opposite way. They say that when the angels accompanied the delivery of the law of Moses at Mount Sinai, the innumerable angels were present at Sinai when Moses received the law, and the presence of the innumerable angels shows that this was an unalterable law. It was a serious law. It was absolutely delivered by God by means of his holy angels, innumerable myriads upon myriads of angels which, by the way, for Old Testament references, Deuteronomy 33.2, Deuteronomy 33.2, and Psalm 68.17, Psalm 68.17, the Old Testament itself confirms this point, that innumerable angels accompanied the issuance of the law of Moses. Therefore, unalterable, It's fixed. This is the way it's going to be. God said through Moses, by means of a company of innumerable angels. That's the way it's going to be. 
Every transgression, disobedience received a just recompense. If there was theft, repayment for theft. If there was murder, the cost of one's own life. And various other penalties. These were the penalties. A just recompense. What's a just recompense? A fair, equitable punishment. Not a severe, excessive punishment, but equal punishment for the crime committed. It was a righteous penalty, he says. Just recompense. So, if that's the way it was with the Mosaic Covenant, he says in verses 3 to 4, have we really considered it this way? How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? The penalties of Moses, the worst, the death penalty, you would lose your physical life. Physical life. But here, he says, you could lose your spiritual life forever. Your soul would be punished forever. No salvation. And it's a great salvation because it lasts eternally in the presence of Christ. And that is why it's so great. We who deserve the penalty of eternal punishment in hell, we are delivered from that and we spend eternity in heaven with Christ. That is the great salvation. We don't deserve it, but Christ made the way for us to be saved. Not only is it a great salvation, and we will not escape. There's no escape. People think they will escape. They, they think, yes, I sin. Yes, I'm not perfect, but I'm trusting the grace of God. Yes, when I die and I meet God and he queries me, I'll just plead for his grace. Well, I, I know he's loving, patient, kind, gracious, merciful. So I know that, and so don't bother me with what I believe. It'll all turn out well. This is the typical attitude people have in Christianity and also in other religions. They have this attitude, everything will be just fine. However, he says, it won't be fine. Verse 3, why? Have we considered what actually we are rejecting? What actually we are denying? Who we are denying? It says here, after it was at the first spoken through the Lord. The Lord came in person, his incarnation, chapter 1. He came in his incarnation and the Lord of heaven personally came and with his presence that you could see, you could hear, you could touch him, you could know that the Lord came from heaven. He descended from heaven in flesh and he spoke these words with numerous witnesses of the day. As the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, that it was over 500 brethren at one time after his resurrection. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. There's no group manipulation, no hypnosis, nothing happening with that. That's 500 plus witnesses. 
So he first spoke it. It was confirmed to us by those who heard. The eyewitnesses, the apostolic witness, and there were 12 at least, and many more. They heard. They were the eyewitnesses. They confirmed to us. We know in written form, but we also know by the eyewitnesses that the Lord said and did everything necessary for our salvation. And then God. God testifies. God bears witness. God vindicates. God commends. God proves that those who heard were telling the truth. How so? Verse 4. Bearing witness or testifying with them. How? Signs, wonders, various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to His own will. It wasn't according to the will of the apostles or other disciples, but by the will of the Spirit, they were able to perform all these miracles and prove that they had the Word of God. Undeniably so. If it's presented like this, wouldn't it be absolutely brazen, stubborn, rebellious to turn away from it? And the, the soul that turns away from this abundance of truth, what is there for him but a just recompense, eternal punishment? You're rejecting Christ himself. You're not rejecting Moses, a man. You're rejecting Christ, which means it has a bearing on the soul, the eternal soul. Either we'll go to heaven or we'll go to hell. So this salvation cannot and should not be neglected. So how so far is he talking about neglect? So far, what would neglect be? Well, I think the prophets are superior to the Lord Christ. Well, I think angels are superior to Christ. And he is lesser than angels, so he is not as important as the angels. I'm going to get, pay attention to the angels. Christ does not possess divinity, so I'm not going to give him the attention that the apostles have been preaching. I'm not going to give him that kind of attention, that adoration, that worship. I'm not going to give any of that to him. This is the way people are. And he says, if we think that way, and many cults think that way. There are many, many cults. They say, some of the cult leaders say that they are Jesus Christ. We even have them today, who think that they are a reincarnation of Jesus Christ, even today. Some of them think and say and claim that God and His Holy Spirit speak to them. But whatever they teach and preach contradicts so far, what we have just said from chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2, verse 4. And it proves that they don't know God. They don't have salvation. They are rejecting 
the same thing that the Hebrew people in the first century were tempted to reject. They're rejecting it. And there's no salvation for them. It's not just a little difference of opinion. These are major and serious gaping holes in theology, and the gaping hole in the theology will lead to the gaping hole of hell. There's no other way to look at it. Now to prove that he had to descend, he had to come into the world, he had to be made lower than the angels. This is proven in verses 5 to 8. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. The world to come is the age to come, that is heaven, the new heavens and the new earth, heaven and hell. That's what he means by the world to come. God did not subject the world to come to angels. Nobody would say, no one would teach, no passage of the Old Testament teaches that the world to come is going to be subjected to angels. Does not teach it. Even this quote from Psalm 8, verses 4 to 6, the Jews who correctly interpreted understood it to be a reference to the Son of Man, the Son of David, the Son of God, the Coming One, the Christ, the Messiah, the Redeemer, the Savior. They knew it to be a reference to Him, not to angels. Could not be angels. Absolutely could not be angels, according to verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. So the world to come is not given to angels, but to this one who for a little while, 33 and a half years, has been made lower than the angels. It's a watertight argument. There's no way to refute it. Then verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying. Let's deal with the introduction to the quote. One has testified somewhere. Critics of the apostle accuse him of not knowing who the one is. Who is the one who testified? Which is absurd. Does he not know that David wrote Psalm 8? Of course he knows it. He knows that the Psalms were written by David. He knows that it's indisputable. In other places in Scripture, sometimes it will be mentioned that David wrote a certain psalm, such as our Lord did this in Matthew 22, when he says that, why is it that David says in the Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand? That's from Psalm 110. So everybody knew when Jesus was answering his critics, no one disputed that David wrote the Psalms. But his point is not to draw attention to David, so he simply suppresses the name. Not that the name is unknown to him or unknown to the readers, or irrelevant in any way to the readers. But for the sake of his argument, he doesn't want anybody to be distracted. So he just says one. 
we do that sometimes as well. The same with the word somewhere. Does he not know it's in Psalm 8? Of course he knows it's in Psalm 8. He uses this phrase or this combination, compound word, somewhere also in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 4. For he has thus said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. Well, any, any superficial reading of the Bible and understanding of the Bible, we know that that verse is from Genesis 2.2. You don't have to read very far in the Bible to know it's in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2, verse 2. He knows it's there, but he simply says somewhere. Why? Because the location is irrelevant for his point. That's why he says that. And, by the way, this is found, if uh, you, one is interested, by a Christian named Justin. Justin was from the city of Samaria. He was a Gentile and a philosopher. And then he was converted. And in AD 150, he has a work called Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew. Justin's Dialogue and Justin, by the way, is also known as Justin Martyr because he was martyred. Throughout history, commentators and historians referred to him as Justin Martyr. Dialogue with Trifo, a Jew, page 260, he uses the same compound word somewhere. But if you read his dialogue, he is profusely, he is abundantly quoting the Old Testament, left and right, and he knows who he's talking about and what he's talking about. And he has precise details about everything he's saying in his dialogue with Trifo. But he says somewhere he uses that word. He also does so in his first apology. It's known as first apology or first defense before the authorities. First apology or first defense in chapter 3. So, this is a way of speaking. And we do that sometimes in English as well. I just said sometimes. I could illustrate with two or three or five or ten examples, but we don't need to. We're going to move on. And that's what he's doing right here. Next he says, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? Notice in our Bibles that when we get to verse 8, the New American Standard Bible has mistakenly not capitalized the H of him the three times it appears in verse 8. The three times it appears, not in the quote, but in his exposition. For in subjecting all things to him, that H should be a big H, not the small one. He left nothing that is not subject to him. Big H, again, it should be. now. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him, should be another big H. Those three occurrences, because they are not capitalized, it has added to the confusion of interpreters of this passage. They should be capitalized, and if they are capitalized, it, will, it would make it more clear 
why he is quoting Psalm 8. The apostle is quoting Psalm 8 because Psalm 8 has to do with Christ. It's not dealing with fallen man. It's not dealing with redeemed man. It's dealing with the Son of Man, Christ himself. That's what Psalm 8 is about. Neither uh, man, fallen man, nor redeemed man, that would be the church. It's not dealing with those two groups. It's dealing with Christ himself. Psalm 8 is definitely, indisputably doing so. Now, this should be clear in context because though he says from Psalm 8 that the Son of Man has authority and rulership, subjection over all things, he says, we do not yet see all things subjected to him. That is, the world to come has not taken place. Therefore, we don't visibly see that. But we will see it. But meantime, verse 9, but we do see him. Now they have a capital H for him. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So Jesus is not yet fully glorified in that the world is not subjected to him in that he has not crushed Satan, the demons, and all wicked men. The day of judgment has not taken place, and everything is not peaceful and serene as it will be in the new heavens and the new earth. At that point, everything will be perfectly subjected to him, and visibly so to us, the church. It will be at that point. But meantime, verses 9 to 18, he has to be lower than the angels for a period of time to die for our sins. That's the way in which he's using Psalm 8. A clarification about verse 7. Verse 7. In Hebrews 2, verse 7, and in the Greek Old Testament of Psalm 8, 4 to 6, the Greek text of the Old Testament, Psalm 8, and Hebrews 2, verse 7, it says angels. Unfortunately, in, in general, translations, including the New American Standard Bible, for Psalm 8 will render it God, a little lower than God. There are two problems there. In Psalm 8, when they say a little lower than God, what they have done is not correctly understood the little. Why little? Is it a little in, in, little in what sense? And the sense has to be a little bit of time. As it says in Hebrews 2.7, a little while. While is a temporal indicator. A little while. Lower than the angels. 
That's how it should be rendered in our English Bibles in Psalm 8, a little while. Next, the problem is the word God in Psalm 8 of the typical English translation. The word in Hebrew, Elohim, most of the time when referring to the true God, it is rendered God. Many times it is rendered gods in the plural when it is a reference to idols. And it's a low, a small g, lowercase g, for gods. Sometimes it's rendered, many times it's rendered God, and sometimes it's rendered gods in reference to false gods. Just like the English word is versatile for those two purposes. However, rarely that word is used for men in authority and angels. The same word, Elohim. And that's how it should be rendered in Psalm 8 in our English Bibles. It should say, a little while lower than the angels. Instead of saying God. A little while lower than the angels. That would make it congruent with the way the Apostle and the Greek Old Testament have treated it. It's not new, novel to the Apostle. It's not the Apostle distorting Psalm 8 because the Greek Old Testament was written 200 to 250 years before the Apostle wrote Hebrews 2.7. And it was already the Jewish understanding. A little while lower than the angels. So no distortion and misapplication by the Apostle. We've been stressing this point. Why have we been stressing this point? The Apostle is very accurate, very knowledgeable, authoritative in what he's saying. Because commentators, they tear him apart. Commentators, scholars of, of the day, of today and throughout history, they have distorted the Apostle, maligned the Apostle, and said that he doesn't know how to interpret the Old Testament. Yes, that's what they believe. They don't always say it forthrightly in their commentaries, but if you read carefully, that's what they mean. That's what they believe. But we can't have that. Whenever the New Testament quotes the Old, it is accurate, it is perfect. Another thing to note, whenever there is an Old Testament prophecy of Christ, the Old Testament passage by the prophet refers to Christ. The apostles know it, and they quote the Old Testament passage referring to Christ. This is known as single fulfillment. Single fulfillment. To use an, another word to contrast it, the typical belief, however, among commentators, both liberal commentators and conservative commentators, and especially dispensational conservative commentators. There are many aspects of dispensationalism that are actually liberalism. This is one of them. Dispensationalism is liberalism in many ways. This is one of them. Liberalism and dispensationalism both believe in double fulfillment. Now, we're using bland words, 
euphemistic words. We're using nice words, single fulfillment, double fulfillment, for the sake of instruction so that you know what the issues are. So what is double fulfillment? Double fulfillment means the prophet actually meant something else, meant someone else, someone in his day or shortly after his day, the prophet meant someone else or something else, maybe even in the distant future, but it had reference to someone else or something else, some other event, according to the prophet's understanding. The prophet, they say, in double fulfillment, was completely or mostly devoid of any knowledge of the death and resurrection of Christ. He was devoid. He had no knowledge or very faint knowledge of what might happen in the future with the coming Christ, if they ever knew about a Christ coming. They didn't know, basically. They didn't know. So then, if they didn't know, and the prophet referred to somebody else, and the apostles are constantly saying, that verse refers to Christ, this other verse is Christ, this one, that one, they all are Christ. We've seen that so far in chapters 1 and 2 of this very book. And we can go to many other New Testament passages, and they are constantly telling us that the numerous passages of the Old Testament actually do refer to Christ. A single fulfillment view. So, the Christological view that Christ taught his apostles, we could also call it the apostolic view. And we've already referred to it as the single fulfillment view. Single fulfillment is the same as apostolic, which is the same as the Christological. It refers to Christ, and that's it. The double fulfillment view has to accuse Christ, and has to accuse the apostles, and has to accuse the disciples, such as Stephen and Apollos, they have to accuse them and us of distorting the Old Testament. We undermine, we distort, we twist and mangle the Old Testament to mean something that it never was intended to mean. And who are our expert misinterpreters? Paul, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John here in the book of Hebrews, what have they done? They have undermined the inspiration and authority of the Bible. And they have undermined the gospel and undermined our confidence in the gospel. We cannot tolerate it. This is a matter of salvation. Because if they have belief in a different gospel, I'm talking about modern liberals and dispensationalists, if they have belief that there's a different gospel throughout the Old Testament than here, then the Bible is teaching two, 22, or 22,000 different gospels. But Paul said, Galatians 1, 6 to 10, that there's only one gospel, and anybody who preaches a different gospel has a curse, has a curse on him. 
This is serious. It would be a sin and worthy of judgment if we misunderstand this important doctrine. Okay, now quickly we'll go through verses 9 to 18, and mainly for the point of showing for whom Jesus died. We're going to show for whom Jesus died. Verse 9 says, But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. All right, verse 9, he transitions. I just proved, he says, that he's got to be made for a little while lower than the angels. So why? So that he can die for us and taste death for everyone. For that purpose, he must come and die. Look at the phrase as well. It says, suffering of death. Why would he say the suffering of death? Because in the time of the apostles and after the apostles, there were so-called Christians, nominal Christians, known as docetics, known as Gnostics, there were these so-called Christians who were actually heretics who said, Jesus suffered, but he didn't die. He suffered, but he didn't die. But whenever the scripture is speaking of his suffering, or usually when it's speaking of his suffering, it means suffering of death. But he needs to say it explicitly because there were deniers of his death. He didn't die. He swooned, like liberal theologians say, who don't believe in miracles. He swooned. Yes, he passed out. He was out for a while, but he was revived and showed himself, appeared to the disciples, to the apostles. He just swooned. He didn't actually die. And lest you think that this is only liberalism, it's not. The cult, the cult of Christian scientism, Christian scientists, it's a cult within Christianity, started in the 1800s in the United States. They believe the same. He didn't actually die. He just appeared to die, but he didn't actually die. Because they say he didn't actually have a physical body. He appeared to have a physical body, but he didn't actually have a physical body. Christian scientists. Also, a major world religion with at least one billion adherents. Islam. Mohammedanism. Islam. The Muslims. They say, Jesus did not die on the cross. They make it sound very religious and uh, sanctimonious. They say, well... God, God, God would never allow one of his true prophets to die. That would be shameful. To die by crucifixion, that would be shameful. That didn't happen. That's what they say. They put a religious, good-sounding spin to it, but it is detestable. Because it contradicts numerous Old Testament and New Testament verses, such as our verse right here. He did die, suffering of death. By the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. 
Now, he is crowned with glory and honor, but in, in a sense with a pledge, because he ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of God, he is now reigning and ruling, but not in the perfect, 100% visible sense to the eyewitness testimony of all of us. In that way, he's not, because the new heavens and the new earth have not been created yet. But meantime, he is. Okay, now, he tasted death for everyone. Look at that phrase, taste death. Why does he say tasted death? Because it was temporary. Because he rose from the dead. That's why he says tasted death. It would happen briefly for three days Psalm 16, 9 to 11, quoted in Acts 2, 25 to 36. So, he tasted death. Now the emphasis, he says, for everyone. According to Arminianism, free willism, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, according to them, for Everyone means for everyone in the world who has ever lived. Notice they have to add certain thoughts or phrases to define who everyone is. They say for everyone. Obviously they say everyone means every individual. Everyone means every person. Everyone means everyone who has ever lived from the beginning of time till the end of time. And if they are universalists, many of them are universalists, that is, they think the devil and all the demons are also redeemed and they're going to heaven, as well as every person is going to heaven, because Jesus died for everyone. Is that what the apostle is teaching here? Does everyone mean everyone in the world, according to those views? According to their um, proponents, no. Look how he qualifies it. We're going to see how he qualifies who everyone is. And everyone, therefore, is everyone of the elect, or everyone of the people of God, everyone of the ones he came to redeem. We also need to add qualifiers to understand what he means by everyone. They have to add it. We have to add it. But we have the context to prove our interpretation of everyone is correct. Their interpretation is not only inaccurate, it is contrary to the will of God, the word of God, the works of God. They are undermining the works of God and they are therefore blaspheming the death of Christ by applying it to the devil, applying it to many wicked men, and saying, yeah, Jesus, he died for Cain. He died for Esau. He died for Ishmael. He died for Ahab and Jezebel. Even though they were dead and long gone, many many centuries before. He died for them. 
And the worst of them will explicitly say that Cain, Ishmael, Esau, Ahab, Jezebel, they're all going to heaven. They are already in heaven. Same with Judas Iscariot. The same with Hitler, Stalin, and other murderous tyrants of the past. So they're all in heaven. Who is everyone? We start at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Verse 10, it was fitting for the Father, basically who possesses all things, created all things, and for whom are all things, to control all things, to do what? To bring many sons to glory. Why does he now qualify it and say many sons? He says many sons. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 20, 28. A ransom for many. The same here. Many sons. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Christ is the author of their salvation, which is our salvation, the many sons' salvation. If hell is real, and if people do go to hell, then why are they not saved? Because only the many sons are saved. Many sons to glory. Because he is the author of their salvation. Not the people thrown in hell. Verse 11. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. He says that those who are sanctified, we cannot say Ahab and Jezebel and Judas Iscariot are sanctified. That would be contrary to the numerous scriptures that address these individuals, address the spiritual condition of these individuals. They're not sanctified. Who are the sanctified? The ones who are actually redeemed. And he also says, all from one Father. Look at that. He uses a universal word again, all. He said everyone in verse 9, he says all in verse 11, we are all from one Father. One Father who has redeemed us. Therefore we are many sons. What else does he call us? For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren. He calls them brethren. Them brethren. Does them include Esau? Does it include Pharaoh who opposed Moses in Egypt? Does it include, does it include Jeroboam son of Nebat? Does it include in Revelation 2 um, the Nicolaitans? Does it include Alexander the coppersmith who did me much harm? Does it include people like that? He says God is calling or Christ is calling them brethren, brothers. How would Christ ever call Ahab a brother, Judas a brother? 
saying, verse 12, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Psalm 22, 22 is quoted. So Christ is the speaker saying to the Father, my brethren and congregation. That sounds limited. Verse 13, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Children. Is everyone a redeemed child of God? No. The rest of the scriptures make that clear. Also, the children are those children God has given to Christ. But has God given every person in the world to Christ? No. Only the children. Verse 14. Why was he incarnated? He says in verse 14, Since then the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. We, the children of God, have flesh and blood, so Christ took upon flesh and blood in order to die with his flesh and blood and by his death render the devil powerless to control us and to put the fear of death within us. We had it before, but now we have release of it. We were slaves to the fear of death because God gave the authority to the devil to bind us that way before our conversion. But after our conversion, because we believe in the death of Christ and the death of Christ was applied to us, his blood was reckoned to us. Now that has changed. But there are still many people until their last breath are absolutely terrified of dying. And they have no peace no consolation, no comfort. Because Jesus didn't die for them. He only died for those who are relieved of this fear of death. Now, that's not to say that the flesh doesn't sometimes trouble us and tempt us about the fear of death. We're not talking about that. But we are talking about, substantially, we have confidence that when we die... We will be with Christ. 16. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels. See, he did not come to redeem fallen angels, the demons, contrary to universalism. He does not give help to them, but he gives help to the offspring of Abraham. Christ helps us. Christ does not help angels, fallen angels. The chosen angels, 1 Timothy 5.21, the chosen angels, they don't need the death of Christ and redemption. The fallen angels, the demons do, but he's not giving them any help. He's giving us help to redeem us. 17, therefore, he had to be made like his brethren. That's us again, in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He says, the 
people, propitiation for the sins of the people, the merciful and faithful high priest. In Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, this is one example. The high priest, he offered sacrifices for himself, for his family, and for the sins of the people of Israel. Not for the Canaanites, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Hittites, not for anyone else, but for Israel. In the same way, that, is, that was a type of what Jesus would do. He would die for the people that God redeems through his death, the people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Uh, we are his people. God's wrath is no longer against us. Verse 18, for since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Christ comes to our aid when we are tempted. He does not come to the aid of people generally. When they pray to him, God does not hear sinners. John 9, 31. Not generally to unrepentant sinners. He's not coming to their aid to help them in their spiritual life. But he is coming to our aid. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.